You're listening to the Autism Weekly Podcast. Each week we share community voices and bring light to stories that increase awareness, acceptance, equity, access, and inclusion. If you haven't already, subscribe to join the Autism Weekly family. I'm your host, Jeff Skibitsky. This week, we welcome Behavior Babe, an online persona created by Dr. Amanda N. Kelly, who is an ethical supporter of accurate application of behavior analysis. As a result of her effective dissemination efforts and unwavering passion and commitment to expanding access to services, Behavior Babe has received invitations to lecture before audience all over the world, including those in Canada, Manila, Bermuda, Turkey, and the United States. I'm looking forward to discussing fundamental ethics regarding behavior analysis with Dr. Kelly today. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Jeff. I'm real excited to be here on Autism Weekly. Well, I I think that the topic that you are going to be bringing up, it hits so many different people. It's going to hit the providers. It's going to hit the families and hopefully challenge a lot of the perspectives. But before we dive into that, I do have to ask, how did you develop this online persona? Where did Behavior Babe come from? (laughs) Thanks for the question. You know, Behavior Babe came from a need. I was working in a public school and I got injured um, on the job. I was working as a district-wide consultant. I was listed as support on IEPs. I was helping families and teachers and classrooms. And when I got injured, They didn't put anybody in there to replace me or to support the families or the teachers. And several teachers would email me or families would call me and I'd say, sure, like, here's some feedback or here's a data sheet. And I was advised not to work while on workman's comp by my employer. So um, I was frustrated. I was really frustrated that families especially um, were not getting children, were not getting what they needed. Teachers were not getting what they had originally resisted (laughs) and then now we're seeking out like we want to reinforce that and so I created this website with one hand because I had a shoulder operation and I gave the password to a couple of people and said here's where you can find examples and samples and data sheets needless to say I didn't keep that job it really wasn't probably the best fit (laughs) so I went and found a work that was more aligned a place that was more aligned with my values and was able to help families there and I continued to develop the page the website and then the website continued to expand and then there was Twitter and we were going to a conference and people were coming up with names and there was misbehavior m-i-s-s and I thought that's so clever and I just sat there for a few minutes and was like, behavior, you know, teacher, behavior, friend, behavior, you know, Jedi. And I was like, behavior, babe. And I really had no idea what social media would become. So I I don't know if it's a recipe for creating this persona in the future. I think it almost had to do with just the timing of social media. And then for many years, I lived in Hawaii, and I think people got really interested in the advocacy efforts and what we were doing to increase care there, and it kept people on the islands feeling really connected. Uh, now I'm in Florida, and you know, Behavior Babe is her own uh, entity now, and I'm just honored to continue <laughs> to keep her going. <laughs> well, you know, I, I see Behavior Babe online all the time right now and I'm, I'm seeing everybody benefiting from what you're putting out there the discussions the thoughts 
And I think that that's something that hopefully we can go into today because the first thing that you said right there, I think is something that we have to realize is that the, the ethics of effective behavior practice and advocacy, they actually align a lot as far as, you know, we have to oftentimes fight for ethical practice, abandoning somebody and not having somebody for continuity of care. That's an ethical problem. But if nobody's there to advocate for it, you're stuck in a position where somebody is absent the treatment that they needed. And I, I would imagine that's part of what led you into the, the real dissemination of ethics within our field. But are there groups, are there practical things that are continuously occurring that you're saying, you know, this is where we need to start the discussion? When, when I think about ethics and when I think about common infractions, we're fortunate to get some of those publications from the Behavior Analyst Certification Board that tell us what some of the most likely ones are, such as abruptly transitioning or inappropriately transitioning clients. Um, maybe uh, abandoning supervisees. If you're in a supervision situation, it doesn't always mean our, our students or our learners who are accessing care. Um, but ethics is something that just, it, it comes up all the time, you know, and the challenge is that unless other people around you are certified as well, they're not held to that same ethical code and standard. So you might say, I can't do something as a behavior analyst, and somebody next to you will just go ahead and do it. And you have to think, what is the harm in, in that? And was that the right choice? And so there is no clear you know, flow chart that says, you know, all roads lead to yes, do this or no, do that. And um, my experiences have actually resulted in, I've recently just finished, it's with the publishers now, an ethics textbook. And what we were looking at were these scenarios that happen to anybody. So we, we emphasized in the book that there's no such thing as an ethical or unethical person. You are in situations and you make decisions that people could describe as being ethical or unethical behavior. Now, if somebody engaged in a lot of unethical behavior, you may certainly describe them as an unethical person. But I think it's important to separate those things because we're human. We make mistakes. The important thing is to keep it at the forefront of our discussions and our thoughts. And the reason is not to complicate life. It's to protect our clients, to protect ourselves and our practice, and to protect our field so that we can continue to provide, ho hopefully, high-quality access to care. Yeah, and I'd, I'd actually love your opinion on, on this particular topic, which is more on how we are training these behavior analysts. Because, and, and I will self-profess here, back when I was going through the, the BACB course sequence and, and my master's program, is that you had ethics, but you never got leadership. You never got management. So you could learn the ethical decision on every individual case, but you never got the full gamut of how to be able to manage a caseload, how to be able to ethically transition care. That's something that's not in all coursework sequences. It takes supervisor-supervisee relationships. It takes additional CEU training. So. Is that is that the gap? Are we not getting informed from the beginning the way that we need to? Is it or is it a matter of we're not taking the initiative going forward to empower ourselves? 
you know, our behaviors are shaped by our environments and the environment with which I've been practicing in over 20 years, the landscape has drastically changed and therefore we need to pivot and change how we behave. And that's very unique to where somebody's living and where they're practicing and what their roles are. If you're working within school settings, you may not have restrictions in some states. You might also have some licensure restrictions. Um, there's some belief sometimes that licensure is another hurdle. It might delay care. That's a very valid concern. When done properly, it, it increases consumer protection. It gives another mechanism for somebody to investigate. Think about an electrician. If they came to your house and something was wired and it was faulty, you know, you would have a mechanism to say, hey, this person was licensed or they weren't licensed, um, better yet, or, or worse off. And so you would have that protection. It's the same concept of not allowing everybody to call themselves a behavior analyst or practice behavior analysis. And so I think that would narrow what we're defining as the behavior analyst if we think about this more globally. But we can't possibly learn everything in a graduate program. I did my master's and my doctorate, and I'm immersed, and I feel a bit uh, like I have a special interest, I won't say obsession, with behavior analysis, but I, I do. And there's still so much more I'm not an expert in within our field. So I think part of it is there are gaps. There are things we could be teaching in, in the graduate programs. I think because the landscape has changed, it's important to look at whether or not faculty understand or have the experience in order to teach or if they need to look at um, adjunct or guest lecturers or someone else who can come in and say, this is maybe not how you bill insurance, but this is how you conceptualize dosage recommendations, which we are expected to do when we're practicing as analysts. So there's some gaps for sure there. I think also about the eight hour supervision post certification requirement and have this thought of what if there was a an eight hour post ethics and compliance requirement um, and perhaps not for everybody, perhaps only if you're billing insurance or only if you're in a compliance role. I don't know. Like I kind of have uh, vague dreams there. But the idea is that it is accumulation of these experiences. It is going to be hopefully something we start seeing more of. Um, as I mentioned in the te textbook, we, we talk about billing healthcare. We talk about unintentional fraud. We talk about the ethics of that. So if instructors start picking up this book and using it for class discussions, we hope that we've at least introduced this conversation. So perhaps we get some there. We also can do, of course, continuing education. And I think for me, I did recently an hour and a half, just an hour. I mean, that feels long when you're the presenter, or perhaps uh, maybe not as long as when you're an attendee on medical necessity and 900 people attended. And it was like, that was just really informative and high opening to me. I wasn't aware that many people were hungry. So that's what I would say. I don't think people are putting their hands up and walking away or intentionally not trying to learn new things. I actually think they're craving this information and it's hard to come by. I would suggest that the Council of Autism Service Providers, if you're an organization, being a member of them, if you're an individual, being a member of the Association of Professional Behavior Analysts, APBA, um, for all that they've done with regard to advocacy. So yeah, the university plays a part, but there's also these other places. And you know, we did the hour and a half and people are like, I want more. So then I, in partnership with Bright Kite, we did a six hour, two day, like three hours each day, 
treatment planning course, just talking about how to navigate that difficult relationship and how to simplify it so you can go back to working with your clients. And after six hours, people are like, where's the next round? Um, so we're, ooh, I don't know. I don't know that we have the answer to that. But again, I think that speaks to how hungry people are. No, and I, I couldn't agree more. And I, I'm glad that you have taken this as a, a personal challenge. So, you know what? I want to put more material out there. I went through the same thing with uh, with medical necessity where um, it's it's a passion of mine. It's, it's making sure people get the appropriate level of care. There isn't a one-size-fits-all model, and we have to make sure that we're prescribing. I mean, that's ultimately what we're doing is we're giving somebody a prescription for this is the best amount of care for you to be able to get your ultimate prognosis of whatever goals you're working on. And I don't know that that was tackled for a lot of people is that it was eye-opening being at that point where, oh, wow, nobody ever really talked to me about this before. I always kind of just went with what I did at my last practice mm-hmm. versus really understanding the nuance beyond it, behind it. Do you think that 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 is at all shaped by, I mean, you you look at behaviors. So, I mean, is that shaped based off of what maybe our industry or our society, which might include insurance, has navigated us to for such a long time and arbitrary caps and setting up just specific models of care instead of looking at the individual? I really think the most important thing we can do as analysts, as providers, as parents, as recipients of care, as uh, individuals themselves is be aware of the laws that protect us that exist. Now, your funders may not always know these laws, and so you can really be empowered. And that's stuff that we do cover in the courses. We talk about mental health parity in particular. So it's Mental Health Addiction Equity Act, Mental Health Parity Equity, uh, Mental Health Parity Addiction and Equity Act, MAPIA. And what that basically states is that you can't place more restrictions on any mental health care. And for this uh, purpose, autism is defined as a mental health uh, condition, then you you can't place restrictions on that any more than you would on a physical matter. So we don't cut somebody's cast off of their arm, their broken arm, because, hey, it's your 15th birthday. You know, we no longer cover broken arms. Uh, That seems so ridiculous when we translate it that way. And I think that's been very helpful um, for me in communicating with people the absurdity of some of these restrictions. And I think it's empowering for providers in, in particular to learn that a lot of these things are not things you have to comply with. And I believe that we are under the misconception that this is the authority. Now, we certainly do have a contract with our health plans, and we want to make sure that we are in compliance, you know, with those contracts, that we're advocating for what we need when we are advocating and um, defining what's in those contracts. At the same time, uh, I don't need to give you a child's IEP. You know, I didn't I didn't write the IEP. You don't ask for it when they are prescribed physical therapy. So you don't ask for it when they are prescribed behavior analysis. And I find that's incredibly eye opening for people, something that to me is relatively simple. And they're like, well, what do you mean? Like I they told me that they wouldn't give care if I didn't give this. And, you know, that's essentially a threat that's not backed up by any uh law or protection for them. And so it is very, I think, tricky, scary, difficult, um, confusing, overwhelming to navigate the insurance landscape. But at the same time, I don't always think that the health plans are playing games. I think they are really 
trying to understand this model of care, which is so different than many other models, just simply in its intensity. So I do take the approach when I teach people that let's start with an educational um, stance, like let's start by giving people the information they need. Let's clean up our treatment plans. Let's put important stuff in the beginning, like let's stop using it, these uh, templates that we can't differentiate at a quick glance if you're a reviewer. So I think there are ways in which we can tailor our behavior to be more effective. Um, for sure. But I but I also wanted to just mention your point about things we learn in grad school. And, you know, this dates me, but the VB map, for example, was a popular assessment and it was published after I graduated my graduate program. So even if you could learn everything in grad school, our field, I think it's beautiful that it always is growing and changing and that it is up to us to stay up to date. Yeah. And I, I think that I understand at times where a misguided treatment or a templated treatment that really doesn't look at the individual could inherently cause some lack of trust or friction with a payer to what is it that I'm actually paying for? And I think what you just said right there of us taking it on ourselves as a responsibility to empower our own learning to be great clinicians first and advocate for the rights of our patients as well is what's going to move that needle so that payers can't just say, you know, I don't trust that ABA is being done adequately in all circumstances. Um, so what is it that you would say is, it, I know that you, you're doing some work with BrightKite right now on treatment planning. What is it about the treatment plan itself that helps to give that trust and to demonstrate that you are individualizing all the care and your prescription matters. Yeah, it's really communicating and telling the story. You know, um, I, we are scientists, we are being technical, we are medical practitioners, and we are billing and being reimbursed by health plans. But we also need to tell the story, you know, who is Simone? Why does she have these challenges? What is it that's connected to her diagnosis that shows this is because she has this diagnosis, that this, these are the challenges that we're going to uh, assist with? You know, how do we prioritize them? How did we involve the client? Are we collaborating with other people? If that's not clear, if that's just somewhere hidden, if that's at the end of a report, that's going to feel um, perhaps not even intentional, but it's not going to feel maybe respectful. And what I will say is when I, and I learned this testifying and submitting legislation, I thought I was giving people my time by writing long explanations, but really I was commanding too much of their time. So who wants to read a 75 page treatment plan? Um, not a health plan, not a reviewer, not the person who wrote it, not the parent, not the recipient. So who are we writing these treatment plans for? I think it's important to think about this, and I sometimes envision it as if it's a patchwork quilt. You know, oh, now we have to add in that they're, um, you know, can receive ABA or they're they're able to receive it. They're available for treatment. I'm going to add that sentence. Now I have to say whether or not they have speech and language or other services. Okay, I'm going to add that, and we start piecemealing into something that once made sense that no longer makes sense. And it's like, yeah, sure, maybe we're getting by, but the most important thing is these authorizations are, the, that's the gateway to services. So it's so important and everything rests there. Yes, of course you need to be doing high quality care. Yes, you have to write objectives that make sense. 
I tell people, if you can't tell me why you need to work on this goal and you can't tell me why it needs to be a behavior technician or a behavior analyst, then it doesn't deserve to be approved. And I think that is humbling and important, but also empowering because it allows analysts, I think, the freedom to recognize that their clinical judgment matters. It's not what your agency says. It's not what that first agency you worked at taught you. It's not that it, it, it is literally your clinical judgment and that nothing overrides that, nothing supersedes that. And so if you believe 25 hours are, are necessary and you believe you've documented why, then you should be able to get a comprehensive report to a health plan. Maybe they have some questions, you clarify, you get it approved, you move on and spend your energy on designing, overseeing, modifying, refining, updating those treatment programs. That's where I want people to be spending their time, not on the front end. No, and and I couldn't agree with that more. I, you know, there are things out there now. There are accreditation boards that are looking at the organization so that the behavior analyst doesn't have this uphill battle all the time. But these friction points are are going to occur where a behavior analyst might disagree with a policy of an organization or with the way that the organization is practicing. It and you've been doing this and you probably don't have the challenge of how do I confront this person and voice my opinion through this, but a lot of behavior analysts are young and in the field young, not age-wise, and might not have the same confidence. What would you suggest to them to be able to make sure that they're going the right route to correct any sort of problem that they're seeing within an organization or an industry? One of the things an organization can do to support themselves and remove bias is to create some sort of peer review a process with their treatment plans. It doesn't need to be a supervisor. It can be as a, a colleague that whoever um, the organization deems, whatever level you deem that they have proficiency in being able to do that. Or maybe it's limited to a quality assurance or a clinical director. That all will depend on your organization and your organizational structure. Um, but if that's not something that exists, that's something you could ask for. That's a lot of organizations do have weekly meetings or they have analyst huddles. Is that something that we can start reviewing, you know, more difficult clients or talking about conceptualization? Um, what resources do people have? You know, what sort of scenarios could we run through together as a group to start thinking, would that be focused? Would that be comprehensive? And I think in continuing the conversations, because again, there's no clear prescription on that and there shouldn't be an algorithm and a formula, but you would recognize that if behaviors were more intense and severe across more domains, you might prescribe more hours. You also might prescribe less hours because behaviors need to get to a certain lower level before you can increase demands and have that intensity. So there's a consideration there that just because the severity is high across multiple domains, what I mean is like communication, behavior, social reciprocity, behavioral rigidity, those kinds of domains. Um, so it, it isn't very always just, yes, again, check the box, do this. And so that's where their clinical judgment does come in. And if you feel very strongly about something, make sure you have the evidence to back it up. And at the end of the day, you make, you know, it's your name on that report. And if somebody disagrees with what you write, then they can write the report or they can have the report and not invite you to the meeting or however feels appropriate for that arrangement. 
I have been in situations where people have disagreed for reports they have co like contracted me to write and that has informed me to add into consent forms when in contracts when I work with people saying you may not agree with what I write in the report, but you do agree to still pay me. So, um, or, you know, you do agree that this is still what you, you asked for. And so for early career analysts or even more seasoned analysts who just lack some of that confidence or who just want to avoid confrontation, who doesn't uh, want to avoid confrontation, um, it can feel like it's confrontational, but it doesn't need to be. Be objective, you know, stick with the facts, um, advocate for what you believe in, and be open to learning um, completely. You know, there's probably a reason why they're your supervisor, and if they disagree, like, they might have an opportunity for, for you to gain more knowledge as well. Yeah, I mean, count me a believer on the idea of peer review and also of having that peer support network. Um, I, I, I strongly believe that if you feel as if you know it all, then you are not going to be a wonderful clinician. There's got to be <laughs> gaps that you need to be able to rely on others to be able to help fill. And I think that having the chance to have those debriefs, to have that mentor, mentor relationships also helps to establish scope of competence is that we're in a field right now where and I think you hit on it is that, you know, we don't just stop at age 15 because we're because somebody is is deemed done based off of regulation or something is that we have all ages in a broad scoped field and scope of competence is something we have to be aware of. And without those relationships we were describing, I think it's really tough. Is that is that an area within ethics that. How would you navigate or how would you guide an organization to fulfill that need so that we can still service everybody yet competently i believe in collaborative approaches and i really appreciate what i've seen with the council of autism service providers where their members gather monthly have conversations if somebody needs to get you know funding for a playground but they're on a certain zoning like it could be things like that technical or it could be more clinical in nature how do you design incentive programs? How do you, um, you know, incentivize retention of staff and things like that? And so what's been so beautiful about it is it doesn't feel like these are um, mine, 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 <laughs> you know, kind of secrets. There are people saying, here's what we do. Maybe that works for you. Maybe that doesn't work for you. And this free sharing of information is really going to elevate these organizations um, and the individuals who are representing them. If you are an analyst who works for them, I believe even if you're a technician who works for them, then you're able to access all their continuing education for free. And so there's something I think for every tier of an organization, it's not just for the leaders. I think that's been just really Im just impressive. I've been really impressed. It's been um, wonderful to see when we have this growth in our field. I think also when I when we're talking about expanding competence, it's very difficult when we're wanting to branch out into something new and we're like, but who's done this before us? And it might not be anybody or it might be one or two people or it might be somebody who's not a behavior analyst and you have to journey a bit further and stretch, you know, your own uh, circumference of area where you journey and you go, oh, I have to go beyond that into that other land and territory. And so it's something that people may not have fluency in their repertoire for navigating and therefore we want to avoid it right if we're not 
competent and strong at something, we want to back off and avoid it. I would say don't avoid it. Um, take those opportunities and chances, and that will help you develop a, a bit more fluency with it. Yeah, and, and that that opportunity that you just described right there of having a field that is collaborative. There's no there's no need for business competition in this field. It it should be a collaborative field, and um, I think that the forum that you described as as a member myself, I will say, is that I've learned a lot through the process, but I've also been able to sit down and collaborate and refine processes and work as a joint organization efforts to be able to push the field or challenge thoughts or guide in different domains like your medical necessity. It's, it's an important thing that the industry has to define. So I'm glad that you're doing that. So how or what would you suggest to this growing population of BCBAs and this new population of RBTs that are coming into the field on a regular basis because it's an expanding field? What is your advice for them as far as how to navigate everything that's going on right now? Whew. Well, what what would they say? Um, if you are diagnosed with something, don't go to Google, right? Google MD is not the answer. Um, if you do that, you're just going to find a plethora of different opinions. That's what social media provides us. And that can be insightful and informative, but also really confusing and overwhelming. What I would say is there's things to look for when you're interviewing with organizations, those green flags, you know, if they take you to the clinic or the setting, if they're showing you um, uh, or giving you access to existing team members and you can talk to them about how things are going, you know, uh, if you can ask questions, the opportunity, if you recognize that a, an organization doesn't offer any professional development or doesn't offer any coverage for continuing education or isn't, um, you know, networking or sending people to conferences or bringing speakers in. And rather what you're seeing is like jackets and pizza parties, like that might be an indicator that that organization has not yet figured out what is probably the more potent reinforcer for longevity in the field, which is really supporting your team members, making sure you have the right hours of supervision. The thing that I would really say though to the technicians in particular is thank you. Um, I have been in that role in the past, and even while pursuing my doctorate, I spent time working as a technician for that summer. It uh, reminded me how difficult it is and how exhausting it can be and how much energy it requires. Um, but also you can really make and empower impact change. And without support, I can only imagine how frustrating that would be for the technicians and for early career analysts. You know, I would say find yourself a mentor if it doesn't have to be in your organization, find yourself a group, whether it's your classmates from your university, somebody you'd worked with in the past or just a coffee chat that you found or somebody you connected with online. I've made a lot of relationships online that later, two, three years later, we meet in person and uh, they've been so meaningful. So there are people out there who are eager to support you and help you. So thank you. Find them. We're here. <laughs> so, and, and, and to put that into full circle is Behavior Babe is an online persona and you still get out there and do the in-person presentations and guidance and consults. 
but you're working on some amazing things. You're working on some ethics issues. You're working on programming issues. You're working on things that are going to empower the field. Where can people find these or how can they get access to some of the materials that you're putting out there? A lot of the materials that I've created are free on my website and that's behaviorbabe.com. Um, you can also find ideas, upcoming events, polls on LinkedIn, on Instagram. I might have one video of my puppy on TikTok, but everywhere it is, it's Behavior Babe is the handle, or maybe you'll find Dr. Behavior Babe, I think, at TikTok, uh, but not a lot of content there yet. Um, you also could uh, check out my podcast, which is also goes by the name Behavior Babe, just to keep it simple and memorable for people. You know, we talked about how it started and and it kind of was just alliteration and a thing I thought was a Twitter handle. And now at least I'm like, all right, it's memorable. People got it. And so that's that's important. And, and that's where people can find me. You can also find me at the upcoming, you know, events that I'm going to, one of them being the Autism Law Summit, which is where I learned about the mental health parity, which is where I learned about, you know, EPD, EPSDT, got to say them all fast, early periodic screening detection and treatment. And that's where I've gotten a lot of the information that empowers me. So if you want to come hang out and learn all this info, uh, I'll see you in Oklahoma in October. Um, also going to be at Autism New Jersey and, and you know, be around. So I post those online at behaviorbabe.com and people can, can see that and access me. Just got back from Ireland. Uh, exhausting and wonderful and so cool to connect with colleagues over there. That was incredible. Well, just by putting that offer out there, I have a feeling you're going to get bombarded. But I appreciate you coming on and, and sharing with us. And uh, I hope to see you at the Autism Investor Summit as well. So thanks again, Dr. Kelly. Absolutely. Really appreciate the opportunity, Jeff, to you and your team. Thank you for listening to Autism Weekly. We hope you tune back in next week to learn more about autism in the real world. Autism Weekly is now found on all the major listening apps, including Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Amazon Music, and more. Subscribe to be notified when we post a new podcast. Autism Weekly is produced by ABS Kids. ABS Kids is proud to provide diagnostic assessments and ABA therapy to children with developmental delays like autism spectrum disorder. You can learn more about ABS Kids and the Autism Weekly podcast by visiting ABS Kids. Dot com. Thanks for tuning in. See you again next week.